Alright, good morning, saints. Our scripture reading for this morning is from the book of Hebrews. So please turn with me to Hebrews 4, verse 14. We'll read all the way to Hebrews 5, verse 10. Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The word of our Lord. Indeed, a full, a full morning. And I'm aware of uh, physical frailty, so I will uh, increase my delivery speed a little bit. So hope you brought your Bibles and your piece of paper. Uh, because I won't be able to take the time to go into any ancillary or secondary texts, given that it is already time for Tony's lunch. Um, So most of you are aware that in the last month or so, my wife and I have been going through some trials. Uh, physical trials uh, due to uh, major surgery, etc. And I was drawn to this text in particular because uh, due to a series of unexpected results, uh, I have oscillated back and forth between a serene trust and confidence in our Lord to outbursts of anger, mistrust, fear, complaining, and behaving just like the nation of Israel in the wilderness. How many times have you read through uh, the passages relating to uh, Israel and their deliverance from Egypt 
and find yourself being critical and saying, how in the world with all the fantastic, miraculous acts that were performed on their behalf that they could grow bitter and complain? How many times have you thought to yourself, those people are really bad people? Or, to use my phrase, idiots. So last week, as you know, Reed's been preaching through Revelation and painting a picture that helps us to begin to understand the risen Lord Christ. After all, Revelation is, in fact, a picture book. It's a book that shows us God in pictures and gives us some insight as to what the risen Christ is like as opposed to the incarnate Christ that we saw with our eyes through the apostles and their word. And one of the things that uh, Reed mentioned last week, I'm not trying to pick on you. Actually, I'm picking on myself. Was how absurd it is for us to at times become angry with God and to complain. Can Christians really do that? Well, I have to confess this morning that throughout this trial uh, that my wife and I have gone through, I have not always reacted well. At times, I behaved like I didn't have faith in God's great love. At times, I found myself falling into accusing God of not caring. Uh, Not with those words exactly, because I'm smarter than that. I've been a Christian longer than that. So I wouldn't actually say that, but that's the way I behaved. And I realized how quickly I can step into unbelief. Can I be a Christian and behave like this? I ask myself. Now, reflecting on all of this, I couldn't preach on anything other than the fact that we have a great high priest. We had an advocate so that when we sin, and we will, we have one who prays for us. And so I want us to focus this morning on the incarnate Christ, our great high priest, because I realized in the midst of all my grumbling and complaining and stress and fear that I need a priest that I can go to, confess my sins, and seek forgiveness. Even more fascinating to me, as I studied this aspect of the incarnate Christ, is the fact that being a son of God did not automatically qualify him for that office of high priest. That he had to go through a process of learning and being made perfect or complete as a full man. So we read in the text this morning from Hebrews chapter 5 that Jesus learned obedience. In fact, I'm just going to take a second and read verse uh, 7 through 9 again in chapter 5 of Hebrews. In the days of his flesh, flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through that which he suffered. 
And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Doesn't this passage, at least it does to me, I will tell you that this passage grabs me, this whole notion that the perfect son of God had to learn through that which he suffered. He went through a process in the incarnation, being 100% man and 100% God, as the man part, he had to become our great high priest. That he didn't just automatically have that title until he lived perfectly for us. How could this perfect, sinless son of God need to learn Obedience, and this is the mystery wrapped up in the Incarnation. The Incarnation is a subject that deserves our study. We need to look at it. We need to marvel at it. We need to pray about it so that God would expand our minds and our hearts so that we could take it in, because it's nearly impossible to do so. The Incarnation, how could God be man? Moreover, how could man be God? Because he was fully God-man. As a human, though perfectly moral, he had to learn what it was like to be dependent, to be subject to trials, and moreover, temptations that are common to us as our frail human nature. And he had to learn to employ the same mechanisms to be victorious that are available to us. Faith, trust in his Father's love, guidance from the Holy Spirit, and to employ God's word to defend himself against the attacks of the evil one. And verses 8 and 9 of our passage, what we have here is something about the process of being made complete in this regard. The process of being made perfect. And in verse 8b, the means that were employed in this perfecting process were his suffering. It will not be different for us. Suffering is the mechanism that God employs in the process of making us complete. This was a lifelong process of being made complete or perfect through what he suffered. Hebrews 2 and verse 10 says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Theologian John Murray said, As his knowledge and wisdom increased, so did his obedience Or you can say the depth of his commitment to his Father's will. And that's what we have the privilege of looking at as we study the Incarnation. It began early in the life of Christ. Luke tells us in the second chapter, verse 52, that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor of God and man over time. It was an instant This was not a drop it into a water and it's instantly complete. 
It was a process that took place over the entire life of Christ. Obviously culminating in the cross at Calvary. And we're given a peek to see him just before the cross in Gethsemane in Mark 14, 33. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled as he contemplated the abyss of separation. We see him and we hear him in Mark 14, 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So we see and we hear Christ in his incarnation becoming perfect. And we will never understand until we know something of the depth of his obedience that enabled the yet statement that we just read. Yet, even though aware of what terror was to come, obedience to his Father's will. So here's the question for us to think about this morning. Given that we are to be like him, we are to walk in the light of his great example, given that he is our great captain, the leader of our faith, should we expect to escape a similar process? Some people just began their walk with Christ as symbolized by their baptism this morning. So, some places would tell you everything's going to be rosy from this point. And that would be a lie. Because the same process that perfected our Lord is what we will experience in this life. Hebrews 5 again, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. His reverence. Jesus' obedience was learned. Was learned in the furnace. Forged in trial, temptation, and suffering. Now, it is true that we cannot follow Christ's example as sin-bearer. We can, however, follow him in a life that illustrates obedience. In a similar way, our Lord often provides us with someone who can illustrate a Christ-like pattern for us to follow. So if you're a new Christian here today, I would urge you to find someone. As an older person in the Lord, may not be older chronologically in age, but someone who's been walking with the Lord for a while. And follow them. I've been blessed with a man of God for most of my Christian life. What a blessing indeed it has been to have someone who will enter into your trials with you, who is quick to come alongside of you at your darkest times. To help you carry the burden. Someone that you can go to with anything on your heart without fear. Do you have somebody like that in your life? Paul was just this to his young disciple, Timothy. And we can see something of the relationship in the pastoral epistles. Paul also said to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 uh, that... 
he used himself as an example of how they should come alongside of God's people and shepherd them. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul makes this great statement. And if you've been a Christian for a while and know how you've struggled with sin, it is a difficult statement to make. And that statement is this. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Isn't that a little scary? Be honest. Isn't it scary to tell someone to imitate you? When I think of myself over the last several weeks, follow me. That's what Paul said to the Corinthian church. In the context of living before all men in such a manner that invites people to watch me. It's one thing to tell people what they need to hear, to teach them about Jesus and living in the light of the gospel, but it's even more powerful if you can show them. Don Carson, who many of us know and have been blessed to hear from or read one of his many, many, many books, tells a story about when he was an undergraduate at McGill University in Canada. And he was leading a Bible study, and he felt completely unprepared to do so. And it was really uh, uh, blessed in that many, many people came into his study. Well, not too long went by when he had a couple of men in particular that were attending his study that he was just unable to answer. So he took them uh, to another uh, fellow Christian who was a graduate student and a little older. He'd been in the military. He had walked with Christ for a while. And this man, uh, Dave Ward was his name, was a bit rough. And according to Don, brutally straightforward. And he invited one, yet, one young man in particular who didn't understand how being a Christian was any different than being just a nice person like so many people who profess faith in something can be. And so, as he talked with this young man, Dave invited the young man to come and live with him for an entire semester in his apartment. And he said, I want you to follow me as I live out my Christian life. And if at the end of that experience, you still see no difference, well then perhaps there isn't one. Well, obviously the young man followed him for a semester, and at the end of that semester, professed faith in Christ. So Don pointed that out in a sermon that we heard two years ago, or something like that, to show that as elders, as pastors, as mature Christians, we need to invite people to follow us as we imitate Christ. And that, as I said earlier, is a scary thing. And I, I had Steve Hackenberry in my life. And he's a great man of God, still is. And he's doing the same thing for me today that he, that he did back when I was a brand new Christian. Have you had somebody in your life that gave you a similar offer? I feel sorry for those that have never had uh, someone like this in their life. Older Christians, this is a challenge. You should write this one down on your piece of paper that I'm sure you brought. Have you invited somebody to follow you? 
This is the truest form of hospitality. The truest form. Have you invited somebody to follow you? Well, even though I've had a great man in my life, my brother Stabe, I have a greater man in my life. A person named Jesus Christ. He is my older brother after all. He is my example that I follow. And far greater, he is our high priest. Hebrews 2, again, verse 18, since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. J.C. Ryle said this, are we tempted to distrust God's watchful care? So was Jesus. Are we tempted to commit some private sin for the sake of our private advantage? So was Jesus. He was tempted at all points as we are, yet without sin. Without sin. Now, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 3. And we'll dwell here for the remainder of our time this morning. In Matthew chapter 3, we have, uh, we see the commencement day when Jesus was baptized. We had a baptism this morning. Jesus followed all of the commands necessary to be a disciple. He was baptized. And of course, I won't go through every verse. The John, you know the story. John the Baptist says, no, 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 I should be baptized by you. Jesus says, no, uh, we're going to complete We're going to complete everything that was required. And so John baptizes him. Let it be so, verse 15 of chapter 3. But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Part of the process that Jesus was completing was his baptism. If you haven't been baptized, I would encourage you to do so. It's a simple command. It's the time where you publicly profess that you've been washed by the blood of Christ and that your sins are covered. Jesus was baptized, and it was a commencement. If you will, it was a kickoff. A Sunday analogy for some reason. It was a kickoff of his earthly ministry that was to proceed for the next three years. And it was also a place where we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all at the same time at the same place. And we have that great audible declaration of God the Father that says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now I note that chapter 4 follows right after chapter 3 because I'm highly intellectual. And look at chapter 4. Right after the public declaration that this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, it says to us, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What a contrast. What a contrast. He was on top of the world 
I'm sure emotionally, one minute, and then within days, he's tempted in the wilderness. And then it says in verse chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I think that has to be one of the most massive understatements in the entire word of God. And it's obvious that somehow God in those 40 days kept him alive. Through whatever means, I do not know. But physically, you cannot survive fasting for 40 days. When you run into somebody, and they're usually somebody who's at least as heavy as I am, that tells you how much they fast, consider that with suspicion. 40 days, 40 nights, he fasts. And then he's tempted. Now, I want us to focus this morning on the ideal man, Jesus, the last Adam, the new Israel, if you will, and realize that commencement day, the kickoff of his earthly ministry, was immediately followed by the day of temptation. In Matthew uh, 4, it says to us, that immediately he was led into the wilderness, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God. Isn't it fascinating that we have the proclamation of God saying, this is, and then we have Satan coming along, if you are. What a contrast. Satan uses the same tactics with us. He used the same tactics with me weeks ago, which led me to want to preach on this. How can I be a son of God when I'm so prone to complaining and becoming angry? And brothers and sisters, this is not hyperbole. I actually became angry. I was so upset one night, I was arguing with God on the way home from the hospital. Pitiful. I should know better. But I fell into complaining. We know that Jesus' preparation for the next phase of his substitutionary life was fasting complemented by prayer. We don't have it in the text, but we assume for 40 days of fasting and 40 nights, He met with his heavenly father so that he might understand the mission that the father had for him in the continual revelation that Jesus, as a man, received while he was in the incarnate state. He didn't come out of his mother's womb articulating Old Testament passages. He didn't. He learned over time in the incarnation. And he absolutely knew that as the last Adam, he had to have complete victory. It was essential to satisfy our great need for righteousness. A quick comparison to the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam was not alone. God gave him Eve, a helpmeet. Jesus was alone. So many temptations hit us when we're alone. That's why there are times where it's good to be solitary, and there are times where it's good to be with the fellowship 
of other saints. Jesus was alone. Secondly, we, we have nothing to indicate that Adam ever went without food. He was in the garden, after all, with delicious food offered up. All trees in the garden except one. Jesus was without food. He fasted 40 days. And I will say that there's a little implication here is that we are often tempted when we are weakest. Get that. Put that on your piece of paper as a takeaway. I'll give it to you later just to make sure you put it on your piece of paper. We are tempted. We are most susceptible to temptation when we are the weakest. Thirdly, Adam had the opportunity, as I said, to eat from any tree in the garden. Jesus had no options but to live on whatever provisions God gave him in those 40 days to just keep him alive. And finally, Adam was tempted in paradise. It says Jesus was tempted in wilderness, in the wilderness. His choices were eliminated. Successive Adam types throughout the scriptures, whether it be Abraham, Israel, the 40 years as a nation, David, they all sinned. They all fell short. Without a doubt, Jesus had to succeed to pass the test that was administered in his incarnation. So our scripture reading We need to understand that temptations and trials have felt needs, just as Jesus did. What do I mean by that? Our trials and temptation, God keeps us from destruction. But not from a felt sense of trial and difficulty and depression. We taste and we feel loneliness, pain, sorrow, grief. But we are not destroyed. Write this down. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, where Paul illustrates all of the suffering that he experienced in the ministry of the gospel. And yet he says he was not destroyed. Not destroyed. Consider the all things of Romans 8, 28. Or consider the if necessary of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. And so with the trials of Matthew chapter 4 and verse 3, if you are the Son of God, what a contrast to this is, my beloved Son. The temptations still exist today for God's people. Doubt the existence of God. Doubt our relationship with God. Doubt the goodness of God. The first temptation was built upon the false premise that food was the primary need that man has. And, of course, Jesus was hungry. As I said, the biggest understatement in all of the Scripture that Jesus was hungry in that 40 days. But Jesus' answer to uh, this is to give Satan a proper perspective on what we, the children of God, really need. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3. 
that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. Second temptation falls upon Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 5, verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to a high, a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are, same temptation, the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and then he quotes Psalm 91. Have you ever put tests out to the Lord? You can raise your hand if you want, but I wouldn't advise it. It might make people think poorly of you. You know, uh, the devil is smart. Uh, The study in Ephesians chapter 6 that I would advise, write that down, uh, tells us that the devil has schemes. He's clever. And if one approach doesn't work, he quickly adapts his tactics and tries another approach and tells you somehow that the Lord is not meeting your soul's need. Satan will attack us exactly the same way today that he attacked Jesus. And so he says, all right, you quoted Deuteronomy to me. I'll quote Psalm 91 to you. (laughs) If God is your father, why not test him? Have you ever done this? As I... I have, and this temptation is preceded by doubt, so we lay up a test. For God to prove himself to us yet again, as he has so many times before. We take unnecessary risks to put ourselves where we shouldn't be under the pretense that God will pull us off the brink. I have a friend at Cape Cod. Uh, It's a miserable story. He was a professing Christian. He was an officer in the church. He's left his wife and he's running. And when I've confronted him, he said, God won't let me go. And I told him that was a bit presumptuous as a covering to his sin. I can, I can, I can watch that. I can go in there. I can do this because God won't let me go. Spurgeon said, faith is made for ways of obedience, not for flights of fancy. Jesus, author of all the scriptures, knew that a proper interpretation of Psalm 91 is that God will protect us when we're walking in the light. In light of all of our ways, trust and obedience. So Jesus responds again in chapter 4, verse 7, that you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. And the context of that was where Israel in the wilderness grew angry with God and said, you're trying to kill us and you won't provide us even with water. And that's the context of that passage. And the third temptation comes along with Satan. And he brings out what I would call the big guns at this point. The big guns. He wasn't able to trip Jesus like he tripped Adam. 
and God's provision are put to test before him. So now he places the biggest temptation in verse 8 and 9. He says, see the kingdoms of the earth and all of its people. I'll give you this right now if only you fall down at my feet and worship me. In other words, God's mechanism or the means by which you are going to be the exalted Christ, God's way is tough. My way is easy. Do it right now. And you'll have everything that God promised you. After all, God doesn't have your best in mind. What a temptation that was. In essence, to bypass the means that God had called for the eventual exaltation of Christ. Bypass the cross. And I'll give you it all right now. The crown without the cross. My way's easier. Just like the first Adam when he said... When Satan said to Adam and Eve, it will make you wise and you will be like God. Same temptation. So, just like the wilderness, the nation in the, in the wilderness, you can inherit the land without obedience to all of my laws, which was not true. So, Jesus responds to Satan again with a final quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13 and then says, get lost. Get lost. So the temptation to avoid the cross was placed before him at least one other time that's recorded in the Gospels. And you all know which one that was? It came from one of his closest friends. It came from Peter, where when Jesus told the disciples that he had to be crucified, you remember Peter's response was, may it never be. And, of course, Jesus responded to Peter by saying what? Get behind me, Satan. It's the same temptation. All right. So let me, I was admonished to preach simply, which was pretty easy for me because I'm a simple man. So I'm going to give you some simple takeaways. Write these down. Simple fact number one. While God has led us into our wilderness from time to time, he is not the one who afflicts. Write James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. That God doesn't tempt anyone. So there are two buys in that Matthew passage. He was led by the Holy Spirit, but tempted by the devil. God is not the one who tempts. Simple fact number two. Satan's temptations are strongest when we are the weakest. Profound, isn't it? This is a simple fact. We fall into temptation when we're the weakest. And that day that I was arguing with God, I had gotten up at 3 o'clock in the morning uh, I was driving home from the hospital at 1 o'clock the next morning, and I was exhausted, and I was really arguing with God. And if we know that fact, that temptations are the strongest when we are the weakest, 
why do we set ourselves up time and time and time and time again to be victims of temptation by ignoring the means that God has given us to stay close to himself? Everything's going great is some of the worst times in our life. When you think everything's going great and you become independent of God and you're not aware of your felt sense of need like you are in trial, oftentimes that's when temptations strike. Ask the pastor about Blue Monday. When you felt the presence of God on Sunday, Mondays can be the darkest day of the week. So don't ignore the means that God's given you to stay close, even when things are going well. Simple fact number three. Don't be surprised when you're tempted. Well, duh, you say. Don't be surprised when you're tempted. And you need to know all biblical characters were tempted, even Jesus without sin. And temptation in and of itself is not sin. Nothing profound here. That's just simple fact number three. Simple fact number four. James, again, chapter one, verses 14 and 15. When our own lusts and inclinations join together, sin is born. Sin is born. Years ago, Reed did a series out of James. I would, if you want to go back into the pages of history, listen to that passage again. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Temptation become sin with the marriage of lust and will gives birth to sin. Simple fact number five, although Jesus was 100% God, he was also 100% man. His temptations were real. He conquered those temptations which are common to us all, and we acquire his earned righteousness by faith. Simple fact number six, our obedience will not be easy. Our obedience will not be easy for our battle is not just with remaining sin and our own hearts, but also with a mighty foe. Satan is out to destroy our faith. If you don't believe this, commit to walk closely with the Lord and see what happens within 24 hours of that commitment. He was not afraid to tackle Jesus. Do you think he'd be afraid to tackle me? No. Or you. Simple fact number seven. The God-man Jesus overcame, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and enabled by the word of God. And since we share in his likeness, we have the same Holy Spirit, and we have the same word of God, we are free from the reign of sin or from the domination of Satan. We are free to employ the same mechanism, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. 
study the word and apply it to real life situations. Again, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. And remember Jesus' admonition to the disciples. I don't know about you, but when I set about to pray, suddenly I get tired. Have you ever noticed that? I'm going to pray. had a word with my good friend yesterday, and he's struggling with a lot of health issues right now. And I asked him if he was reading, and he said, I, I start to read, then I fall asleep. Remember Jesus' admonition to the three, then he said, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Matthew chapter 26, verse 41. So I admonish you to learn from what you've suffered. Learn from the times when you can go back in your life and you say, boy, I really blew it here. Because if we don't learn, God's recycling of trials and temptations will continue. I'm not saying that they'll go away if we learn, but you don't want to repeat this course. I don't know how many people had to repeat courses I did in college regularly. You don't want to have to repeat this course. Learn. Take the time to digest what happened in this trial and why did it happen the way it did. Confess your sin and rejoice in our great high priest. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. For blessing us with the fact that Jesus was a perfect man. And as such understands completely every one of our difficulties, trials, and temptations. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in the fact of the incarnation and our great Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.